Greetings and welcome to lecture number seven. Um, this one's probably going to be, you know, like all of them have been kind of different in their format. This one's going to be probably a little bit more quick um, and a little bit more slide dependent because I think the slides are pretty um, intense in their uh, words. So sorry for them being a little bit wordy, but I think it's an okay thing for this kind of version because we're talking about intersectionality um, as well as women's studies or black women's studies and black queer studies, which I'm only kind of doing a very brief um, conversation about all of them while giving kind of some intense background. But like I said, the background is already kind of written down very uh, intensely on each slide. So you don't necessarily have to have me talking it through the whole time. I'll give my little uh, side comments because as you see, there's a lot of slides and don't need to be. And I might skip over some slides or say you can read these slides instead of actually being like one slide at a time. Um, but yeah, so let's start. So um, on the beginning here, you see Intro to African American 7, African American Studies Lecture 7A, and you see there's a picture. Um, and I really just want you to notice this picture. It's not going to come up for reflection, but look at the people who are in it. Look at the, basically, this is, would be the front of a protest. Uh, this is in the 70s or 80s, I'm sure. Um, and you read the sign here that they're carrying in front saying, Third World Women, We Cannot Live Without Our Lives. Uh, there's been a lot of conversations about brutality, as well as uh, African American women, especially being killed for their sexuality, um, as well as just being unsafe due to other sexual behaviors, uh, such as working um, in sex work or um, pornography or other things and african-american women have been uh affected by those kind of systems that show or look at those uh practices as deviant um as well as the additional layer of them being black and so it's already black people are seen as deviant in society especially in these kind of 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80 time periods, and then the behaviors that some black women were participating in were even more deviant, and there was no protection from society um, that they could call upon, and so people started to protest and also started to make uh, intercultural conversations, both to women. Um, movements and to black movements saying why aren't you addressing these issues that are affecting people such as black women such as black queer folk who are at these other intersections they weren't using the word at the time but they had kind of similar language of talking about the matrices of oppression or the multiple uh you know lines of oppression that someone would face and so i just wanted you to really like focus on that picture and so on reflection one I want you to think about your own experiences and how have Africana Black women been part of your learning? Have you had teachers, administration, other educational professionals, and just name them um, as well. If it's a no, reflect on that. If it's a yes, they were all over the place, reflect on that and talk about how that's a unique experience uh, in the United States. Um, unless you were trained in like Nigeria or Ghana or something, then of course that would be a little normal to you. Um, B, how have Africana Black women's experience in, or intellect been taught to you? Have you learned about the philosophy of Black women, the history of Black women, Black women sciences, mathematicians, or any sort of writers, both fictional and non-fictional? 
anything so just tell me about that how have you learned it um how have black queer experiences and intellect been taught to you as well as how does your knowledge of the experiences in like a black queer folk and black women compare to your knowledge of white men um latinas and indigenous people so that's a reflection number one so the first thing the question that was happening in the 80s as well as the question that uh i mean it doesn't really come up people kind of accept it as normal but sometimes think about why black women studies why do we have to have that conversation especially if we're saying africana studies black studies is supposed to be centering african-american africana experiences then shouldn't they be um centering the experiences of those people who identify as women but in the reality or at least how it's been practiced even if you see what i've been doing in this semester how many people have you read so far have been women um maybe one or two at this point as well as uh when you think about the history of african-american studies even the history that you've been you know you may have come across in your own uh k through 12 and more education where are black women in those narratives where are black women in kind of the creation of knowledge um and why has black studies been kind of male-centric until a certain point or especially male-centric with certain experiences that are centered or focusing on a patriarchal view of um the african-american civil rights experience especially um because i don't know if i've uh complain to you about my Rosa Parks issue but the fact that she's always considered the mother of the movement and she is taught in a very passive way um, as opposed to the men who sound very active so when you know African-American history is often generalized right and so it's generalized that men were acting and doing and women were sitting on buses and getting kind of pulled over um, instead of them being active members of organizations um, and men also being active members in organizations, but also could have done other roles. So it's trying to, you know, at least the historiography would be a little bit more complex. But this is why Black Women's Studies um, had to come about because the historiography, how the history was written, tended to be male centric. Um, how African American studies was formed, the subjects that were. Um, centralized the analyses that were centralized tended to be male centric until the 1980s um, and there was a lot of ignorance and invisibility and misrepresentation by both mainstream society as well as in the african-american uh, scholarship that uh, were hiding and making invisible the experiences of black women so this is in the next slide you see all the women are white all the blacks are men but some of us are brave and this is not necessarily the first book or scholarly book a scholarly yeah book of women black women's studies it's not the first but it is a major text that as you see won a lot of awards um the women who worked on it gloria hull and barbara smith and patricia bell scott were really central and kind of crafting a different way of talking about the black experience that definitely you know pushed essentially black studies to other avenues that it wasn't being pushed before and so 
that's a question that I kind of had in general and probably they were asking at that time is while reclaiming African-centered thought and histories, can we also reclaim the intersections of the Black experience? And historically, basically up until the 90s, that was kind of a touchy subject. At this moment, it seems very normalized um, that there is always going to be a Black women, Black queer, well, maybe not Black queer, but a Black woman representation in how we talk about history in african-american studies i don't know about mainstream society but in african-american studies there is a constant conversation about where are the women um as well as what are the men doing so it's a little bit more gender balanced in that way for folks who are queer and non-binary that's a whole nother fight but currently that question is being is not asked as much because it's kind of assumed but in the past especially when the uh, the majority of black scholars were men as well once again fighting those multiple battles then they weren't asking those questions of themselves as black men but the black women when they started to get access to schools same kind of trajectory as white women were getting access to public education in high numbers then they started to do work that centered themselves so one of the popular topics that may come up just in any kind of um you know, in magazines, social media, there tends to be a lot about Black women's perceptions and the stereotypes that surround them. It's also the stereotypes of African American people in general, but the women stereotypes really comes up a lot, especially when we talk about in movies. And that's why like Oscar's so white and all those conversations really tends to have a subs, um, a secondary focus on how Black women especially are being seen in film and they seem to be only seen in certain ways. Um, and so we have to talk about how they are externally defined by mainstream white society, um, as well as how these stereotypes and perceptions are internalized within the black community. So even though, yes, you see kind of negative representations or over exaggerations of black women's uh, personalities, characteristics in society, sometimes people who are black take these on themselves and are reacting to it because they also believe them to be true. Um, instead of just being overgeneralizations or exaggerations or just misrepresentations completely. So the three sisters is my term. Um, Mammy, which it's going to be explained both in the clip and in the next couple slides, is maternal and asexual. The Jezebel tends to be hypersexual and the Sapphire is sassy or angry or all those kind of like terms for that. Um, these are all kind of historical terms, the mammy coming from Gone with the Wind, Jezebel being from the Bible, and Sapphire is um, an Amos and Andy character who was the nagging wife of, uh, I think, Amos. So if you watch the clip, it definitely has a little bit more uh, visually fun representation of what I'm about to say in the next slides. And Francesca Ramsey is a really good YouTuber. Um, she's come far from YouTube too. She's on MTV and I think this is an MTV decoded clip. Um, so watch this one. It's a little bit more fun. So the Mammy, and you see this is on Aunt Jemima Red and Mid Pancakes. Um, today, Aunt Jemima's been kind of recrafted that I think she has like pearls on. It looks more like an aunt who has, I don't know, gone, got a good job or something like that. They purposely crafted her to look a little bit different, um, but she's still on the boxes. And so, but in the 1950s, Aunt Jemima used to look like this lady. 
um the mammy the character the stereotype is often portrayed in me- in media in books television etc um as having a unwavering loyalty to the white family for she works often at the expense of her own family or they're not even going to show the mammy having a family so it's always just there's a mammy character whatever is happening to the white family if, if they're having problems she'll help them out um, she's happy, she's jolly, she's working, but it's at the expense of, or it separates her from her own family because either they're invisible or she's like, I have to go to work instead of taking care of her children. And there's an, kind of an assumption that she's never had sex before or she had, you know, um, um, she just adopted children or something. Um, but really, she's always working for the white benefit. So in media, and and this is all media, um, newspapers as well, her pleasant personality reinforces the ideology that the enslaved and later the domestic servants were happy and docile. So if people think that the Mammy is a true character that actually existed, then we can say, well, slavery wasn't that bad or being a domestic servant wasn't that bad. Um, Instead, it was a myth that actually supported the exploitation of African-American women's domestic labor. That if you thought everyone, at least on TV and stuff, were happy and they were good with their jobs and they were happy serving white people, then you didn't have to pay them as much. Or at least that's the argument that was being made. Um, And that you could treat them poorly. Um, As well as the assumption that they didn't have a family to go home to. You could assume that these black women should stay in your house forever essentially because they are supposed to fulfill this mammy role and only help white individuals so particularly the film the help even though it does have some problems in terms of who the focus is of the film but it definitely does show some of the issues that black women faced during the 60s as domestic workers during the civil rights era um and the two main characters um whose names I'm forgetting at the moment, but definitely deals with the struggles of being paid workers, paid laborers in white houses, but still being subjected to very inhumane and wrong treatment. Um, But it's all because the Mammy persona really affected how everyone saw each other and affected basically capitalist relationships. Next is a Jezebel, and I don't mean to portray Nicki Minaj as a Jezebel, but the way that she is, could be interpreted and how she could be looked at could be a Jezebel-like character. I think her sexuality and stuff is fine. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just using her as an example of what other people may say. So the concept of the Jezebel also was another kind of enslavement era conversation used to rationalize that white slaveholders could sexually abuse their enslaved black women. Um, And so the conversation around that was that, well, black women are hypersexual, they have high sexual desire, and that white men just were falling to their wiles and they couldn't help themselves because these black women quote unquote didn't know any better and (laughs) therefore should be sexually assaulted ultimately you understand that i'm I'm making it sound horrible on purpose (laughs) and so the myth of the jezebel 
hid, made invisible the abuse of African-American women during enslavement, that instead of it being kind of inhumane treatment, it was seen as normalized. The problem, or the problems during that time period as well, but after enslavement, this still occurred. So when we think about the lynching that's happening in the 19, basically since the late 1800s to the early 1900s, um, lynching was the killing of black bodies, but a lot of rape and <clears throat> uh, just sexual assault in various ways also happened to black women. Um, and so it also obscured their victimhood, both within and without their community. So even with it in their communities where you expect kind of people to understand the reality they saw or they couldn't necessarily like comprehend and I'm giving these people a little bit of credit I don't know their actual thoughts um but they you know knew that this phenomenon was happening that African-American women were being raped or being assaulted or being touched inappropriately by whomever um and they just kind of assumed that we need to, you know, ostracize those who are victimized um, and try to super protect another group of individuals so that they remain pure and can become proper wives. So overall, the Jezebel on both sides of the equation still uh, operates under patriarchy and under virginity and the uphold the upholding of virginity and the importance of virginity for good wifehood um and so it affected you know everybody in that way the idea of the jezebel and it still affects a lot of black women today um in this idea of hypersexuality and the automatic idea of if someone is promiscuous having sex with a lot of people um dresses in what is often called scantily um, or scant clothing then they are asking for it which connects once again to the me too movement um and all of that and so one of the things that is i want you to watch is this clip about reese taylor um reese taylor oprah says it in the in the speech she gives there's other more detailed conversations about the history of reese taylor but reese was raped um and i wanted to note that reese was 25 and the people who raped her were 15 and 19. a lot of people are like she was raped by men but i want to emphasize that she was really taken advantage of by teenagers and that the idea of black women being sexually assaulted by white people happened young it happened kind of as a uh you know to get your manhood you can rape a black woman like that can be a conversation happening in the south um so you can listen to more about that next is the sapphire and the sapphire uh is probably something that still really is maintained today because it's kind of once again it's internally accepted as well as externally um promoted and so the sapphire uh as i wrote here is often depicted as a sassy mammy um so very they can still be um overweight mammies were usually overweight um so the sassy mammy um was also verbally and physically abusive to her husband and children or anyone she met she often quote unquote wore the pants in the family um and just has a very no-nonsense attitude 
um, which often gets put today in kind of like you'll have a sassy black friend. Um, they may not be a larger built person, but uh, they'll still perform that role of giving, you know, good one liners um, and all of that. So the sassy mammy comes up kind of in the early of 20th century, um, once again, and continues on to the middle and continues on to today. But it, once people were free, they still had to, or at least white society still was attempting to define and strangle basically what black people were doing. And so they believed that the uh, economic uh the poverty essentially that was happening in african-american community was because black women didn't know their place and that they were to um stand up you know they stood up for their rights too much that they worked outside the home too much and essentially it was inverting american values and therefore they were performing a deviant gender and so i continue on with the sapphire a little bit more um, because it affects public policy so in 1965, the thing I'm showing you here is called the Moynihan Report. Um, unofficially, it's called the Moynihan Report. The actual document is called The Negro Family, A Case of an Actual Action. And it was written by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was the Secretary of Labor under JFK and LBJ. So in writing this document, they were trying to say, well, African-Americans, there's a problem, apparently. So how do we fix the problem of poor Black people? Um, and essentially it led to this idea, um, if you look in the next slide, that there is a, the matriarchal structure of the African-American community is part of the tangle of pathology and states that black women who have an average, who have on average obtained higher education at a greater rate than black men hurt the chances of American progress for African-Americans because American culture is a society which presumes male leadership in public and private and the arrangement of society facilitates such leadership and reward it. And they were saying the subculture as black people um, doesn't have this pattern and therefore is at a disadvantage. And I show this cartoon that was on the previous side that um, even though single motherhood is was is a thing happening in African American community, that if you look at all the things that essentially this woman is carrying, ideas of unemployment, illness, exhaustion, low wages, childcare, even looking poor, crime, both in the neighborhood or being affected by or performing it, um, bigotry in various forms, lack of proper education. Um, but the government is basically saying you need to be under a man without acknowledging that black men are dealing with the same levels of oppression, um, both in getting a job or lack of education or living in impoverished conditions or not being able to quote unquote lift themselves out their bootstraps because of the systematic oppressions that black women are having. So it's a, you know, un a not realistic conversation but it's only because of the assumptions of the government that black women or sorry that the black community basically isn't is socially deviant um and they the way they answered it was basically by saying they were socially deviant more instead of addressing the underlying problems such as um, low employment, racism for people not being able to get jobs, etc., etc. 
Um, and I briefly just wanted to go over the idea of the complexity of reality versus representation. Um, and so when we think about the United States population, even in the 1960s, African-Americans were not a large number of the population. They were still about 11 and even today they're only about 14% of the population and has remained kind of steady in that range. Um, but the representation of people who are poor, people who are on welfare is dominated by black uh, photos, imagery, etc. Stories in the news tend to be about black people being poor. And yes, black people as a majority have lower economic status than on average than quote white people but numerically there are a lot of white poor people in the world or in the united states who's are not represented as negatively in the media um, and so these kind of pictures in only three years um, someone did a study and we're saying that in 1964 only 27% of the photos accompanying stories about the poverty in newspapers were black subjects in the next year it rose up to 49 percent and then by 1967 three-year period 70 percent of photos accompanying stories about poverty featured black people and we can have conspiracy theories about this but it really shows that there was a trend in order to put the face of poverty on, as a black face and that really will affect political um you know intrigue not intrigue but how people would see the politics surrounding welfare reform um, if they see that it's a blackface because blackness is often associated with negativity you don't want to support black people and therefore if you don't want to support black people and you assume or make it look like most poor people are black then you're not going to support welfare reform or welfare at all even if you are a white person who's in welfare so one of the other um, very major stereotypes which really affected um, policy is the welfare queen and once again this is kind of a brief thing that you can look at if you look at the video here um, it's black america mlk and still i rise the myth of the welfare queen um, and this is once again is another myth and you see this picture with democrats in power <laughs> i'll take two and it's a welfare queen going getting a cadillac um, but this was all in mythology, and I'm actually going to play a clip of uh, Ronald Reagan talking about the welfare queen. A trail extends through 14 states. She has used 127 names so far, posed as a mother of 14 children at one time, seven at another, signed up twice with the same caseworker in four days, and once while on welfare, posed as an open heart surgeon, complete with office. And I wanted to reiterate uh, the idea of social constructs. And so the things about the welfare queen, all the things about black women, um, and the stereotypes of the Mammy, the Jezebel, and the Sapphire, even though these are all stereotypes over, you know, over generalizations, exaggerations, misrepresentations, they're still um, institutionalized. People still use these things in order to impact policies, impact 
psychologically impact emotionally these humans um both on the internal side as well as the external side and in the next slide you see that even in african-american communities even though black power and black power uh advocates were also trying to impact how african-americans are viewed both in the public stage as well as internally they're trying to say black is beautiful there still was some anti-woman or at least anti let's say progressive woman uh stances within the african-american community and it felt to some women not to all women that they weren't being listened to and so even for once again some women just like today are still pro certain ideals um pro patriarchal values I want to say, you know, that's fine. That's what they do. Um, but for those who were against it, it seemed kind of um, confusing even that their black leadership, who once again was saying they were against whiteness, they were against white supremacy, they were pro black is beautiful, they were pro women, um, were not necessarily for the equality of women um, in all facets. And you see a Mary Bracca, and I'm just going to read this first sentence here, but we do not believe in equality of men and women. We can never be equals. Nature has not provided this. We will complement each other. And now there's a conversation with that, an intercultural conversation about what it means to be in complementary, um, particularly in, if we want to say, an African continental aspect that some of the African-Americans at the time were trying to adopt or reclaim. But it's not necessarily uh was not necessarily accepted and thought as a good thing by all african-american women at the time um another thing is the student nonviolent coordinating committee and all these things are kind of through the 60s and onwards so it's not necessarily one point in time here um but you see in snick and this is actually a the SNCC position paper that is about women is actually created by a group of both white and black women. So this was more of a uh, cross-racial or interracial uh, solidarity here. But when the women presented the paper discussing their role in the movement, you see on the first sentence that, or not the first sentence, yeah, the first sentence too, that there was a staff that was very important and a large committee was appointed to present revisions to the staff and the committee was all men. Um, the two organizers were working together to form a farmer's union without asking any questions. The male organizers immediately assigned the clerical work to the female organizers, although they both had equal experience in organizing campaign. And so these are a lot of the issues that the women were having during that time. And they spoke out in an event. Um, and it was not it's not that it was negatively received, but people felt that uh, the women may have been overstepping their bounds. Um, but later at an informal gathering and this is what's come into kind of the history of the movement and kind of a representational statement so carmichael who's now uh if we will currently call kwame Ture, made an offhand joke um when they him and his compadres were talking about the paper um that the only position for women in snake is prone when you look up the idea when you look up the what prone means um in dictionary definition it basically means on their belly um, some people say he actually probably meant they're on their back, but either way, he was supposed to say the only position for women is a sexual position. And he claimed that he was saying this in joke, mind you, even that's problematic, but he was trying to make it funny with his, um, buddies, but they were still talking about what the women had presented, or at least in that same context. And it was read as very, uh, 
it was even just uh oh i'm trying to think of the word it was demoralizing to the women who were working in SNCC that they still weren't being heard even though they were still acting as uh very active members in an organization that was trying to assist in voting rights and in danger to their own lives but the leadership or the mostly male leadership wasn't listening to their demands their needs their desires for equity within the organization so as i say here africana women at least by the 1980s basically getting it from both sides and where should they go for a political ideology where should they get for affirmations etc and so in reflection number two um i'm asking you to describe a time you have seen any of the three sisters in media and then i want you to reflect on and B, in her work, Sister Citizen, Melissa Harris Perry claims that Black women who live below the poverty line will support policies they believe um, that they that actually place stricter restrictions on welfare recipients because they believe that they believe in the welfare queen stereotype. So, what is your reflection um, on just this fact? This is just kind of a general knowledge, and what do you think? And C, if you were a psychologist or any other kind of mental health professional. How would you aid black women who believe the stereotypes and choose practices that work against their best interests? And it can be any of the stereotypes, even stereotypes you've heard of like black women saying they have to be sassy, they have to be angry in order to gain um, access to certain things, even though they may not feel that way, or that they have to be a mammy to certain populations for certain reasons at the expense of themselves. Um, and their self-care so like they're always mothering someone else but they're never mothering themselves or their um, personal family um or and this is all like i'm trying to be sensitive here because as i keep emphasizing that stereotypes are exaggerations um and some people do adopt them and sometimes they're people's personalities so not to say that everybody shouldn't be some aspect of the stereotypes so like some people are angry and they're angry for a good reason but sometimes people are seeing the parts that are played in media and feel like they need to act according to that in order to achieve um even to achieve blackness within their communities so i just want you to think about that um So the next slide, um, like I was saying, when the question asking of where should black women go from there, one of the question, one of the answers to that is they should become feminist, and that was definitely happening in the 60s and 70s, especially when feminism was um, moving as a important movement uh, to change basically everything. And women were forming organizations, uh, gaining access to higher education in very high numbers, not necessarily going on the same script of you're a wife, you have children, you're under a husband's um, care, and you move on from there as, you know, as the dictate tells you to. But instead, women were thinking about choosing other careers, working outside the house, driving where they wanted, traveling where they wanted, having child care or having children when they wanted, having child care at all, um, having someone else take care of their children while they pursued other interests and having that be a okay practice um, in other kind of arenas connected to their sexual um, choice as well as their reproductive choice as well as their marriage choice 
um etc etc until feminism in feminism has been around but we tend to call them waves of feminism um waves and they all the there's three or four waves depending on who you talk to and they all have different uh focuses foci um so the basic definition they have here is the advocacy or belief of equality of genders in political social and economic arenas this definition that i'm providing is definitely a third wave definition and i'm pretty sure the people in the 1800s who are fighting for suffrage wouldn't be necessarily um, agreeing in the definition that i'm giving here or at least even the people who are fighting for um women equality in the 1970s i'm not even sure if they would agree fully with the definition i gave here so as i said there's four waves the fourth wave is kind of disputed because it's the current wave we're living in and so i don't know if history will allow this to be a fourth wave of feminism or it could just be something that happened and we moved on um so the first wave will be the suffrage movement second wave equal rights with men and people um, trying to gain access to uh, equal wage compensation as well as just access to jobs, access to education um, in equal numbers to men. The third wave, uh, which is an interesting time because we could say that that happened in the 90s. Um, it might have happened a little bit earlier. It might have also happened during the 70s, but there's a kind of different focus. Um, is about individual individuality of what it means to be a woman um, and what it means to be a progressive woman, as well as reclaiming ideas of femininity and motherhood um, in general. And so if you see the second wave is like equal rights with men and men being the standard, um, which was a lot of, or at least some people says, was a denial of motherhood. Instead, the third wave was like, we're going to reclaim motherhood, reclaim femininity really, really hard. Um, and what does that mean? And one, at least one example of that kind of reclaiming motherhood is the um, being allowed to breastfeed and breastfeed in public. And so that's part of that kind of movement of what that means. Um, and then the fourth wave, like I said, it's disputed, is sexual harassment, toxic masculinity, and just general gender liberation. But another way to talk about the different feminisms is saying that there's different types within each wave. That the people who are part of the organizations or even the splits within organizations were not necessarily all, you know, having you know drinks together every night some there was a lot of political differences happening within each wave um and i'm going to do a basic kind of conservative liberal radical definition for each of the um waves um but there's probably more branches to the political leanings for how certain organizations um push certain policies during each wave so there's conservative which we could say is a holding women's rights but still respecting the patriarchy in some fashion or respecting whatever the status quo of the time is but making sure that women are um whatever the vocalness that they need to have is um is what they're espousing so you know people women want access to jobs but they still want to make sure that men are, you know, the boss of those jobs. You know, it's an interesting conversation that some women have. So it's kind of like their reaction to um, Trump when some women were like, he can grab my pussy. 
that was an interesting conversation but it was more of a conservative women's rights conversation um then there's a more liberal feminism which basically has the equality with men it still holds men as kind of a ideal standard but this connects to kind of what i previously talked about how whiteness is equal to citizenship according to american law or american legal systems it's the same here they're like it's not necessarily equality with men or at least men the individuals but men the concept of a human with rights according to the united states um and then radical uh, feminism will focus on the concepts of the human and what that even means um as well as how do we uphold difference um and they have they want ideological shifts not just political shifts but also ideological shifts away from various oppressions including gender and sexual binaries and norms and they would prefer to work on things such as equity and liberation and not just equality radical feminism as it had happened during the time is often against patriarchy and the systems that uphold it so against patriarchy itself as its own concept as well as the systems that uphold it such as capitalism racism the usual you know people the usual suspects so to speak um but some of the things that you may have heard that are part of the radical feminist agenda so to speak would be and it could and they definitely do overlap with a liberal feminist approach and some conservative feminist approach but radical especially their practices of getting these things done as well as their ideological uh partners uh, tends to be on the radical end of kind of the political spectrum and so being pro reproductive rights um against traditional gender roles pro sexual liberation um i put complicated relationships with pornography because sometimes they're like some radical feminists are like pornography should be for everybody but other people are like pornography is also connected to the male gaze and we should limit the male gaze so it depends what side you're on against rapists and rape and pro consent um another one same with pornography having a complicated relationship with prostitution tending to be you know pro women having sex work and being able to use that as a form of income but also against once again the idea of male dominance over women's bodies in this economic fashion so it's complicated they're often against capitalism in some way and or against the US government and US government whole as well as US government in part such as just US governmental policies or uh, statutes or president etc and often once again having a complicated relationship with religion depending on what radical feminists are talking about um because they could also be pro religious freedom and being able to act as a woman under your religion whatever that may be um but at the same time because acting within your religion may go against some of the previous uh points that are already on this slide so the question though for radical feminism and this is kind of a historical understanding is who is the, at the center of these movements so when we think of like the 1970s and all the women's organizations that were happening the question that I would ask you as well as ask anybody else would be who is the leaders of these movements who was speaking out who um pushed certain policies who pushed certain agendas to be quote unquote the feminist agenda of the time and so my questions would then be why were those individuals such as Gloria Steinem why were they the center um 
and if they are the center? How does this change what the movement stands for or the movement's mission? And overall kind of a question of what is their relationship to men and men being in quotes because it's not necessarily the individual men, but the relationship to the man concept um, or a group of people called men or who identify as men. And so when we say if white people are the center of the movement, why are white people the center? And it might just be because they were in charge and they have money. Um, then if white people are the center, then what is, how does them being the center change the movement's mission? Basically, we'll be focusing on what white people can do, what white women can do or want to do. Um, and then white people, white women's relationship to men during the 70s movement tended to be kind of antagonistic. And there was interesting conversations about how can women live without men? Um, and if you think about those kind of questions that are happening, how did people who would be not so cool with having an antagonistic relationship with men or having a white focused mission or having white leadership, where would those people, what did those people think? How did they feel about it? And how did they feel about their own issues possibly not being addressed by white leadership? So this is where we get this third world feminism, post-colonial feminism, radical feminism. They're all gonna be connected. Um, and like I said, this is second wave and onward, um, but they ask different questions. Um, so they were asking how patriarchy and just kind of the overall rule by men and how does it connect with the various other oppressions such as racism, classism, uh, border um, or closed borders impact and I'm not necessarily saying this is a category, but impact non-white people, impact non-white women, impact non-American women, impact non-white, non-American queer people. These are the questions that were more central to third world or post-colonial radical feminists. Also, they were more concerned with um, an alternative perspective that did not look white and privileged, as well as um how do they focus on difference and how do they focus on the local because they were also saying that without having local conversations that they were missing out on those you know specific nuances that the you know having a national or international sisterhood would gloss over because once again all women as they would say in this time as well as today aren't alike so how could we have you know just being like well with international sisterhood we've addressed that all women want to wear what they want but in reality white women are like we would like to wear less so to speak while in some some islamic areas they might want to be okay and instead be allowed to wear the hijab or the veil and not be forced to not wear it you know kind of that interesting nuance to it so black feminism is part of this third world post-colonial movement um and just particularly having the center of their focus and the women who are part of that are black um and they're trying to have a different mix to what feminism would mean at the time as well um for black women because black women's issues and theirs were definitely different and they definitely had a different relationship to patriarchy and that black male patriarchy wasn't 
and definitely would not be the same as white sorry black male patriarchy is not the same as white male patriarchy because black men are under white male patriarchy and so that kind of multiple layers was something they also had to address and so one of the important statements that solidified the idea of black feminism and women's studies was the Compahee River Statement, River Collective Statement. Compahee River um, is named for Harriet Tubman's 1865 military action, and they wanted to honor a black woman and kind of a political strategy that this black woman did as the you know center of their movement, which reflects how their um, collective their organization would be different than other organizations and so in their statement and this is just one this is like the first paragraph of it I wanted to focus on the the idea of the human um, so they said the focus upon our oppression is embodied in the concept of identity politics and once again they're not necessarily the first people to talk about identity politics in the 70s but they are a constantly referred to source for that concept and so when we skipped the last sentence they said we reject pedestals queenhood and walking 10 paces behind and so this is like a both and kind of conversation the idea that like some people want to be on the pedestal and they were like we're rejecting that because that also means something and they, they also reject being less than they reject being inferior to because that means something and they um in their statement they say to be recognized as human lovely human is enough and that's kind of a really deep and important statement that they're making um and that's why i have it as reflection number three of why do you believe it was important for the combahee river collective to claim black women were human um because they could have claimed anything they could just say black women are black women but they wanted to emphasize very early on in the mission of their collective um that they were human um, how does that relate or how is that different than what other people might have been talking about at the time or even people are talking about today? Why is humanity central to how they want black women to be understood? So like I said, a lot of these slides probably are going to be skipped. Um, I want you to listen to a little bit, um, one of the black women exemplars, just for someone that you may or may not have heard of, is Sojourner Truth. She is a formerly enslaved um, person who was really a strong, adamant uh, abolitionist, um, as well as a woman suffragist, um, as well as a she preached um in general and this is just a little part of a famous speech she had a speech that tends to also be really quoted a lot and really is central to the uh, black feminist mo movement as well as intersectionality as well as the women's movement people quote this statement a lot of ain't i a woman um which is kind of what we would say is a proto intersectional uh, analysis um, and this is not stern truth because no one was recording her at this time, or at least no one kept the recordings, and they would be really, really old. But this is Alfie Woodard, who's an actress, reading just a little clip. That man over there says that women need to be kept into carriages, lifted over 
So you hear uh, Sojourner Truth um, basically claiming that she's done a lot of work. She worked in the fields. She, you know, all these kind of amazing feats for who she is. She bore children. Children were sold off to slavery. But doesn't that owe her the title of woman? Um, if you think about slavery, black women weren't considered women. They weren't considered human by mainstream white society. So her speaking in public about her uh, experiences was one really amazing because women even weren't allowed to speak not alone a black woman and she giving a lot of uh, emotional support to her uh, womanhood and that it should be respected and womanhood also doesn't just mean being dainty so she wanted to challenge that too she was trying to say black women are part of womanhood but womanhood doesn't have to be we are protected by masculinity womanhood can be basically living as a human being another theory that i'm not going to go over a lot is the idea of womanism and so there's black feminism which has its own little history and then there is after a certain point a lot of black women um and black women scholars were thinking that black feminism was was also not uh, dealing with their needs. It wasn't being culturally relevant. It had too much of white feminism within it. Um, and so they separated themselves or at least started another um, offshoot of, I guess we could say feminism, um, but black feminism too, um, and instead called it womanism womanism gets its start from kind of alice walker and i wrote it here in 1983 she wrote in her text womanist is feminist is purple into lavender and she defines womanism um as a culturally relevant uh woman-centered analysis and way of being that you know centers black women but also and that's what it's like it's hard to like say how there's really different without like basically looking at how people analyze them differently um if you look at like feminists a lot of it is like uh as i said antagonistic early feminists early 1970s feminists let's make that temporal conversation might have been antagonistic to men but black women weren't trying to be antagonistic because men and 
black men and black women were basically in the same boat and there was no you know benefit to be antagonistic to black men in that way um but womanism kind of was just another criticism of how feminism and black feminism at the time were running um but like i said in basically the last 40 years of this there's been a lot of overlapping of what black feminism and womanism is and you really have to like get into kind of personal ideas of why people are naming them different things i tend to put them in the same category um just for my own sake so like i usually do black feminism slash womanism in order to encompass any um theoretical or praxis-based scholarship that centers black women and has a culturally relevant um focus um but one of the things i also wrote is in, it's in criticism but it actually works to generate solidarity with various genders races nationalities sexualities and it resists the various oppressions so that's kind of the it's also intersectional conversation and it does the work that people say black feminism doesn't do or womanism doesn't do so when we think about not just in kind of the world and how it's socially affected but in scholarship um there have been four major uh points that black feminism womanism has done to change the academy and these all are kind of under what black women's studies does and so one of the things i'm just going to read them real fast is historical revisionism um and theory construction because a lot of the history of black women was as we kept saying um not around at all there were a lot of centering of black women's issues in sociology psychology um any of the kind of social science studies uh so that's why i said there's intercultural sexism what that actually meant how it was different than just general white men against white women sexism um ideas about sexual behaviors and identity people trying to understand what black queerness actually is and like i said the popular idea of media representation really was centered um in challenging how black women acted in their own lives versus how they were portrayed in the media um another one is just intersectionality which i'm going to go to a little bit later and the idea of universality because there's a lot of push to be universal how do we make general sweeping ideas about what it means to be a black woman or what it means to be a woman and instead black black feminism black womanism um, and womanism more so was really trying to focus on the idea of difference and what it means to be not just you know black and woman but queer or poor or rich or having children or not having children etc 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 and how those differences should be put into the middle and shouldn't be just marginalized even within um other marginalizations or oppressive experiences and this is where crenshaw comes in so kimberly crenshaw is a lawyer um and an academic she teaches but she started out as law uh, as part of a law firm um and used intersectional analysis in order to open up legal discussions about how to um fight essentially cases where the gender uh, or the multiple uh systems that are affecting a client of hers um were not necessarily addressed by the law because the law was doing things like well if it's about race then 
your you know client there was other black men in the law firm so therefore it can't be a racial conversation or being it's about gender well white women were getting preferential treatment or something like that so therefore your black woman client doesn't fall under that and she was like well but being black and a woman in this kind of legal battle um needs to be considered but the law how the law is done was separating race from gender and you can't combine legal precedent or something like that i don't know law but she was trying to show that um to fight the systems of repression we need to see that they intersect um at various um points so watch this video it's 30 minutes long you can fast forward through some of it but make sure that you can get reflection number four and talk about what is the most interesting idea to you from Karen Sell's talk as well as define intersectionality as you may have learned it before in this course and how you would apply an intersectional framework in an educational setting you're allowed to pick whatever educational setting and just in case if you never heard the term before today just listen to what Crenshaw says and then answer the second part of the question of how do you apply it in an educational setting So I give a definition or I give multiple kind of points of what uh, intersectionality is, but I'm going to skip the three point slide and just let you read that and really go to the next one, which says intersectionality is used in policy, scholarship and personal identity recognition and the recognition of others. And I just emphasizing here a lot of things that you heard about intersectionality is already addressed in Kimberly Crenshaw's speech. Um, but I want to emphasize again, and I'm actually going to play just a little bit of clip of her talking of when we think of intersectionality, a lot of times how people are teaching it or people are talking about it in media tends to be really personal. It tends to be I am intersectional and uses that kind of interesting language because I am X, Y, Z. Um, but in reality, or at least how Kimberly Crenshaw had promoted it was that she wanted it to recognize the oppressions, the systems that maintain and or create the oppressions and the methods we need to change them. So she was really trying to make intersectionality be a structural um, focus, being a framework to see and to address um, how others are impacted in whatever systems they are. Um, and it can be used in scholarship. It can be used for talking about your personal identity, but it really was supposed to be a structural tool in order to change or disrupt how the structure um, was putting these kind of barriers in place for multiple groups of people who fit, quote unquote, within the intersection. No. 
it's more that right and even though yes you can talk about intersectionality being just about your personal identity it really is to talk about the structure surrounding it and that would be the end of lecture 7a